seers, and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord, we come to you, and we ask you to take these words that we have heard And we are able to hear them and to read them and to see them. Uh, But we want to know them as well. We want to understand them. We want to dwell in them. And we want what they say to be our reality. We want to abide in this word and we want to live in it, Lord. So we ask that as we spend time in your word that you would open our eyes to the good things that you've given to us in Christ and the good things that you've given to us in your people, the the fellowship of the church, those gathered together by you filled with your spirit for the purpose of glorifying you and growing in grace and supporting one another. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and a heart that is ready to receive the word written upon itself. And then we pray, Father, that you would help us to put these things into practice, to be careful to do them, that we might be encouraged That the gospel, the good news about Jesus, would be known by more and known by many. And that we would delight in what you've given to us. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Uh, Sometimes you you need a tune-up to get back on track. Right. You know, you need uh, you need an adjustment. Uh, I learned a number of things uh, last week. I went to the eye doctor and they've got this cool machine. They take your glasses and they stick your glasses in it and it like reads your prescription. Right. And uh, it's it's like a a glasses machine for glasses. It sees your glasses and then says this is what your your glasses are. Anyway, uh, so I give the doctor my glasses. I said this is what I'm what I'm struggling with. And I, I learned I learned a number of things. Um, three, to be exact. These are, these are three things which will guarantee that your 
uh, current set of glasses will not do their job, and you will be frustrated. One, um, when you get older and you don't need, just need glasses for, uh, for distance, when you need progressives, you know, the cheaper the lens, the less prescription they actually put into it. Right? They, there are some that there's only prescription right in the very middle, and there's nothing like around the outsides. And so I did what I always do, and I was like, How much are glasses? You know, and they're like, They're this much or this much, you know, and this is the little. And I'm like, I want this, the least possible amount of money to pay for glasses. And so I only got this much prescription in them. There was like nothing in there at all. Second thing is this. If your lenses are not centered, thank you so much. Uh, if your lenses, oh, double. Nice. I'll drink one now. All right, cool. Um, if, you're, if your lenses are not centered over your pupils, right? If your lenses are here and you've only got this much prescription, they don't help you at all. That's the second thing that I learned. And my glasses that I had were not centered over my pupils. And then third, if one of your prescriptions is totally out there, right? If it's completely and utterly off, you know what happens? This signal going to your eye, your brain says nothing that's coming in is making any sense. It's all out of focus. And it actually tells your right eye to like shut down or power down or something. And so I've got this, I've got this weird set of glasses that is completely off. I spent probably about the last nine to 10 months constantly taking my glasses off and just using my computer like right up against my face or not seeing what's, what's going on. I could see while I was driving. Don't worry about that. It was all right. But, but man, I'll tell you what, this is what happened, right? They say, we'll have your glasses ready by Tuesday or, or Thursday. And so um, I get the call on Thursday that the glasses are ready and I go right down there and they put them on. And suddenly I'm like, my children have grown. <laughs> you need to shave, you know? Like, I'm like, I'm, suddenly I can see all kinds of, of, of stuff. But here's the, other, here's the other problem. I found I've gotten so used to taking my glasses off that when I sit down to do certain things, I open up my computer, I take my glasses off, and then I'm like, no, 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 I can see now with my glasses on, and I put them back on. And, and, and so there are these habits that have, been, have been, like, that have crept in, which are unhelpful, that I now need to cancel out. Um, as Paul opens up this letter to the Philippians, he is speaking to them and he's shaping their expectations and their vision of what fellowship in the church is like, what fellowship is supposed to give them, what the partnership that we have together in the good news is supposed to bring to us and to supply and what we're to put into it. And here's, here's what I find amazing. When I... put aside my expectations of what I'm going to find in a text, and I just say, what is actually here? What is Paul saying? Sometimes these things are surprising to me, and it shifts and adjusts my sense of, of what it is that we're supposed to be doing together, what it is that we've been given in each other. Uh, and, and so there's this, this change when we look, and, and we, may, we may say, wow, that's clarifying or helpful, or I've got some bad habits that have crept in, 
you know, in terms of the way that I relate to other Christians, like, like, like me taking my glasses off and needing to like slap my, my hand, like, stop it, you know, stop, leave them on, stop taking them off. Um, Paul focuses his, his thinking and his, and his expression towards the church in three different areas in these verses as he talks about true Christian fellowship, okay? Three main areas, three uh, main thoughts. The first one is this, verses 3 through 6. He's going to tell the Philippians that I have you in my, in my mind. I have you in my mind. You're in my thoughts. You're in my thinking. And what he's going to express to them is this thought. I have a appreciation for you and a vision for your life. I have an appreciation for you and a, and a vision for your life. Second area, verses 7 through 8, he's going to say, I have you in my heart. First, I have you in my mind. Second, I have you in my heart. And he's going to say, I take an interest in your life. Third area is this. I have you in my prayers. Verses 9 through 11. And even from a distance, even in prison, Paul is expressing, I'm making an investment in your life. Making an investment. First, he says, I have you in my mind. Paul's response when he hears of the Philippians or thinks of them is that he is thankful and, uh, and expresses gratitude towards God for them. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. When I remember you, I remember you with joy. I remember our common mission. I remember your accomplishments and your potential, and I am happy to be reminded of you. Uh, this is not the kind, uh, this isn't just kind stuff that Paul dashes off, right? He is not the kind of person who feels compelled to be polite all the time. If you read the letter to the Galatians, he calls them fools. You know, you've departed from the gospel and he it can be harsh. He doesn't feel the need to package, package everything like Hallmark style, you know, uh, ultra, ultra polite. And so he doesn't just kind of, uh, you know, uh, he's not just jotting down some flowery prose here. He's expressing his actual thoughts towards them. He feels a sense of oneness with them, uh, 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 some, some, some sense of togetherness. There is this bond between them because of their common goals, their common experience in Christ, and they bring him joy when he thinks about the way that they are living their lives, the things that they value, the things that they are excited about. Specifically, what? He talks in verse 5 about their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, when Paul arrives in Philippi in the book of Acts, it is not like they respond to him and they say, oh, you've come from out of town and you've got a new and strange teaching that we've never heard of. This is great. No, it's Philippi is, is difficult. Paul goes and he shares the gospel with some people and some, some people come to Christ and they uh, form a little church and as they're meeting, suddenly the, this mob in the city comes and begins to attack them and throw them in jail. 
right? And uh, Paul and his friend uh, Silas are chained at midnight, right? After having been beaten, they're singing prayers and praises to God. And this is where God shakes open the jail, right? This is where the jailer, realizing he's lost all of his, his, his prisoners, is, decides that he's going to kill himself. And Paul says, no, 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 we're all still here. And that man becomes a Christian. Um, it, was, it was a rough beginning, but there was a dramatic beginning. And the, the people who put their faith and trust in Christ invested in the church and they were convinced and they uh, began to learn and to know and grow and they were living out their faith. And Paul is super excited. He says, it may have been a tough start. There may have been some suffering there, but we have been together from the beginning. And they were excited about Paul sharing the gospel. When Paul thinks of these brothers and sisters, he thinks this. You put your faith and trust in Christ, and we are working together to share the good news with those who don't hear it. He doesn't allow his perception of them or his judgment of who they are to be clouded by all kinds of other factors and other things, right? He's got a very simple view of them here. These are his teammates and they are getting the job done together. He remembers them and he thinks of them with confidence. This sense of of unity and togetherness leads to Uh, I think, an amazing expression in verse 6. I mean, this is, this, in terms of of truths that we can take to heart and and we can live in and abide in and be excited about in Scripture, these verses 3, 4, and 5 are the foundation on which verse 6 is built. And verse 6 is out of this world in terms of encouragement. It is astounding. Paul says, you've been partners with me from the first day until now. And then he says this in verse 6. And I am sure of this. If you recall, last week I said I was sure that the Patriots were going to win the Super Bowl. (laughs) I was sure of it. Now I have... I have talked to those I need to talk to and said, you know, I didn't necessarily want it to go that way. Um, And I was not right about the score. And I do believe if you go back and you listen to the audio, I said, "Ah, I don't know about predictions. I'll be honest. I Googled some sports writer's prediction and I copy and pasted it. But I believe they would win. All right. And, and, you know, there were, there were one or two people who said, you know, when you first started preaching here, you didn't know anything about football. You called, you called um, touchdowns home runs. Like, you were a mess. And I just, uh, you know, I, I copied and pasted a prediction. Yes, I did. But I thought they would win. I was sure of it. Now, based on what Paul believes about them and about what they believe and where they've put their hope and where they've put their Confidence. Paul returns with a statement of his own confidence. He says this, I am sure of this, that he, speaking of God the Father, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, when you quote that or memorize it or think about it, don't leave off that first clause. Paul says, I am sure of this. He began a good work in you. He's going to complete it. In the New Testament... God reveals that salvation is both an event and a process. And I would say this, that it is actually two events and a process in between. It involves what we call justification. And that is when a sinner, and that's every single one of us, not some exceptional class of human beings that don't attend church. This is every single human being who has ever been born, is separated from God, and uh, has done things which he disapproves of and refused to do things that he calls us to do. When a sinner looks to Jesus Christ and says, I need you to take my place and take my sins and pay for them. When we put our faith and trust in his work, we are declared righteous with the righteousness of Jesus. That's called justification. It is a declaration which God makes where he declares that we are right and it becomes so. We are righteous in the sight of God. Salvation also includes what could be called (coughs) sanctification or Progressive sanctification, which is a setting aside or a growing in holiness, a becoming exclusive towards the Lord in terms of our our behavior and our attitudes. We're growing in holiness and grace. We're being changed and transformed. We have no hand in our justification. And this is good news. Theologian R.C. Sproul has said that if we had a part in our justification, if there was a way that, that, that we could get involved in it, in declaring ourselves righteous, we would ruin it, right? The good news is that God says, you are righteous, and then he says, I will fill you with my spirit, and you will grow in grace and holiness, and that's where we need to take hold and say, I'm going to make different decisions. I'm going I'm to value different things. I'm going to leave behind certain behaviors and and embrace new ones so that we can grow in grace and holiness. And this goes on in our lives from the moment we are justified until the moment that we die or Jesus returns to collect us to himself. And when we die or Jesus takes us to be with himself, The Bible, or theologians rather, call that event glorification. When the sinner sees Jesus and is transformed and the sinful self, the the remains of our fallen nature are taken away and we are transformed into something new, like Jesus. No desire to sin. The, the, The penalty of sin is canceled in our justification. We are fighting back against the power of indwelling sin in our lives during sanctification. In glorification, the presence of sin evaporates. It is eradicated. It is taken away forever. Now, this is Paul's confidence. He began a good work in you. 
I'm sure of this. He began a good work in you. He declared you justified when you believed. And now you have demonstrated from the moment of your salvation, you've demonstrated that you are invested and you are changing your lives. You are growing in holiness and grace. You are walking in a way that that pleases God. And you're being generous in supporting the gospel ministry. You're doing all of these things. That is evidence of transformation and change. And I am sure that just as he justified you, and just as you are growing in sanctification, you will be glorified. You will be. You will be. Because it depends on his work and not on your own. Now, what Paul is, is focusing on here is he's, he's pointing out that this church has sacrificed and they have invested and they have given to the work of, of, of proclaiming the gospel. They've stood with him and, and they've, taken, uh, some, you know, they've taken some personal financial hits and they've given and they have written to Paul and they've sent this missionary to him. We'll learn about him much later in the book, this guy Epaphroditus who came to them came to Paul to encourage him. They are living in such a way that Paul says, God is doing a work in you. He's working. I see it. Even if maybe you don't see it. I can see it happening. Remember what I said his first thought was, I have you in my mind. He's thinking of them and he's seeing their potential and he has a vision for what God is going to do. And he reminds them, the good news of the gospel. You are justified and declared righteous when you put your faith in Christ. And then throughout your days, you grow in holiness and grace. Sometimes you take massive steps forward and sometimes you you fall back. But Paul says, I'm sure of this. He began this good work in you and he will complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. The Christian's great hope ought to be in the two events of salvation and not in the process in between. Okay? Now, just want to be clear what I'm saying there. The Christian's hope ought to be in the two events and not in the process. It ought to be our intent. We ought to invest in our change, in, in, our, in, in our growth and holiness. We ought to strive to live lives which honor God in our behavior, but we don't put our confidence in our salvation in how Sunday goes, or how Monday goes, or how Tuesday goes. We put our hope and our confidence in this, that Jesus Christ went to the cross perfectly righteous and took all of our sin upon himself that we can be declared righteous. And that's the beginning of salvation. The conclusion when we are transformed and changed into God's likeness depends on when he receives us to himself, either when we die or when he comes to collect us, which means that our great hope ought to be in these two places. The work that Jesus did on the cross is the foundation of our salvation, and our salvation will be complete when God collects us to himself. Getting to heaven safely does not depend on our own work. 
on our ability to hold on and to persevere faithfully to the end of our lives. The Lord will see to it that we reach him safely. He gives us his righteousness to allow us to avoid the consequences of our failures and our shortcomings. One of the most important verses, I can remember we spent an entire year of chapels in, in, in seminary focusing on, on this one verse. And this is not every single chapel. This is every time the president spoke, which is probably seven or eight times. Um, Jonah 2.9 that says, Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. He has delivered us from the penalty of our sins when we put our faith and trust in Christ. He will one day deliver us from the presence of sin. The good news is this. God has pledged his word to save those who put their faith and trust in Christ. And that means that those who he calls, Romans says, he justifies. And those who he justifies, he glorifies. That's important. If we have put our faith and trust in him, we can have confidence and we can say without any doubt, I am sure of this, that he began a good work in me and he's going to complete it. This is important stuff. When you look into the eyes of another believer who is struggling, you can say to them, have you put your faith and trust in Christ? Is that where your faith and trust is? And if the answer is yes, you can say, I am sure of this, that you will make it. Because he will make sure that you make it. Right? This is like, if just imagine that God takes us all to, uh, to, to some amusement park, right? Bush Gardens or Disney or something, right? You know, he's not just going to get in the van and leave us all behind, right? We went there as a family. We're going to go home as a family, right? It's not going to be like, well, you know, we came here with four kids and we're getting back in the bus with three kids, 75%, pretty good, right? Those are good numbers. No, you know, you keep the family together. And when they're, when they're super young, it's like we tether them or we dress them all the same so we can keep track of them. Or, you know, we, we do all kinds of things to keep the family together. Keep up, keep up. You know, I count constantly. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Are they all around? God's so much better than we are at parenting. He will make sure that we make it. Paul begins his encouragement and his challenge to the Philippians to be unified in missions together by saying, I have you in my mind. I have a vision for your life and I have a vision for your potential. And this is my hope and prayer for us as a church. Do we have a simple view of one another? Christians can get super complex in their judgments of others. You know, what kind of songs do they sing? What kind of bands do they like? You know, do they listen to this kind of Christian music or that kind of Christian music? Do you like this author or that author? Read this blog, read that blog, sing, you know, like, do you like this preacher or that preacher? And, and like, there's all these, it can be so fatiguing and exhausting. As a diverse, distinct family, 
people with different experiences and different backgrounds and different hurts and, and different hopes and different futures, do we look at each other this way, as those who believe in Christ, who are called together for a common mission of glorifying God together, encouraging one another, and sharing the good news with people who don't know it. Because this is the truth. We are a room of people who are redeemed by Christ if we've put our faith and trust in him, and that means that we will make it to the end. We have unlimited potential to do gospel work together. Unlimited. Because there are no limits when the Holy Spirit is in us and working through us. Is that the way that we look at each other? Or do we say, oh, we don't have this. Oh, we don't have that. Oh, we need, we need this thing. We need that thing. Not that we shouldn't strive. But our ability to succeed does not depend on our earthly conditions. If the heavenly conditions are met. Does that make sense? If Christ is in us and we are going to make it to the end, then we've got everything that we need to get the job done that we need to do right now. You have the ability to live the Christian life if you've put your faith and trust in Christ. And if you haven't, all you need to do is come to him and say, I need your righteousness because I have failed. I'm a sinner and I need a savior and he will give it to you. First section, he says, I have you in my mind. Second, he says, I have you in my heart. Verse Seven, Paul says, it is right for this way. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul had had an experience with them. They lived their lives together and therefore he moved from just having an intellectual commitment to them or a sense of, I have a responsibility to you. He moved from, from this formal sense to, I care about you. I am invested in your life. I have an interest in you. You live in my heart. This is not just a professional relationship. I'll tell you what, it's, it, I think that it was as recent as this week in talking with a pastor. I heard this a lot in the early days of my ministry. Pastors said, you know, the hard thing is you can't be friends with the people in your church. Isn't that interesting? You can't be friends with them. Uh, and I heard another pastor say it this week, you know, you can't really get invested in the lives of, of, of people because they will disappoint you. And then I think like, man, okay, I think every work environment is like that, isn't it? Like, like you, can, you can get invested in the lives of people and make it disappoint you, right? That happens in work. Does this happen, does it ever happen in grade school to you? Do you ever have somebody who was like, yeah. we're best friends, you know, let's like, let's, let's, uh, we'll spit in our hands and shake or whatever weird things we did in the 80s to like say that we were blood brothers forever. Like, I haven't talked to that guy in forever. 
You know, like we, didn't, we haven't seen each other since we were nine. That's a, every now and again, I'm like, oh, you know, the kid who lived up the street from me, you know, I haven't seen him forever. I've survived, right? You know, think about uh, family life. Have you ever been disappointed by a family member? You know, you, have you ever, as, as a, 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 a child, been disappointed by your parents? Have you ever been disappointed in a child? Have you ever struggled in your marriage and said, wow, this person has failed me? What's with that? That all of a sudden now that we're involved in church life or in ministry, it's like you can't get invested in people because they'll hurt you. And I'll tell you what, I, maybe this is just me being cranky. But I make a snap determination. I'm either going to fight with this person when they say this to me or I'm just going to let it go. Because, you know, it's, it's an investment. And, and this guy who I was talking to this week, he's a bit of an, a ministry expert, you know. And I, there was no way I was going to be able to convince him. I tried for like five minutes. And then I was like, you're right. You can't. Moving on. This is the way that Paul did ministry, though. He says... We work together. We have fellowship together. He came to them. He shared with them. They believed. And now he says, I have you in my heart. I love you. I am invested in you. I am interested in you. And I want to see your life changed and transformed. We have fellowship together. We have a relationship as believers. Now, I, I want to I just point out something here, right? Paul doesn't talk about any kind of, of present value when he discusses his feelings for them, okay? Let me, let me point this out. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. You're partakers with me of grace. We're believers together. Jesus is in me. He's in you. This makes us family. And he says, you're partakers with me of grace. You didn't abandon me when I was thrown in prison. You didn't, you didn't leave me. Matter of fact, they had, they had sent him help, uh, someone to encourage him, and they'd sent him a gift. You're with me, and you're partaking in grace in the defense of the gospel, right? Uh, 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 speaking up, positively about Jesus and sharing, and you're also confirming the gospel. This is about how they're putting it into practice in their lives. He doesn't say you're valuable to me because of something that you give to me or because the partnership is beneficial, right? Or because um, we need each other or anything like that. He just says... I long for you. We're family, right? You know, when we gather together for holidays with family or when we get together with friends just to be with them, are we doing it because we need to extract something from them or is it just the together that is what we're after? It's just the experience of belonging and encouraging and Loving, And this is, I think this is so instructive for us as Americans. We're very, like, task-driven, aren't we? You know? You hit the button on the back cave and the garage door opens and you go out to, you know, the world to go and do your things. You get in the car and you go. We eat our meals in the car. You know, we drink 
huge cups of coffee in the car and we're always going, we go to work and we got 88 zillion things to get done. And then you head home and you hit the button on the back cave and you go in and you say, wow, you know, like I accomplished something today. And a lot of times we don't feel like we have time to invest in the lives of other people or we don't have time for relationships or friendships. Why? Because we have so much else that needs to get done. This is something we've been talking about in Sunday school um, quite a bit in our adult Bible study. We, don't, we, do, we have to stop viewing ourselves primarily as human doings. And remember that we are human beings and that we are built for relationship and affection. And we need people to just be in our lives and be our friends. That's a major part of Christian fellowship, is just being there. That's risky and scary and takes time. But we build these deep relationships with each other so that when there are moments of need, when there are times where there is Weeping, and we need someone to weep with us, or there are moments of joy, and we need somebody to be joyful with us. It's not that we then look at this pool of people and say, "Who can I? Who can I grab for this?" Instead, it's these bridges are already built, and so it's just natural. It's the exchange of life. Does that does that make sense? We we need that to be there in order for us to thrive. We need love and care and affection. Paul says, "I have you in my mind." I have you in my heart. And then he moves to the doing. He moves to the action. He's going to move to the, this is how I'm making an investment in your life. It's not particular activity, you know, or it's, it's, not, it's not some monumental, major, uh, complex thing. In fact, it's a simple thing. And I think that means that it's difficult. Um, because of its simplicity, we often will say, ah, you know, that's not a, this isn't a major thing. You know, the, the Philippians need more from Paul. They need this or that. No, look at what he's going to say. He says, finally, I have you in my prayers. I have you in my prayers. And this is where he's saying, I make an investment in your life. I have you in my mind. I see your potential. I have a vision for you. I have you in my heart. I have an interest in you. I have, a, I have a connection to you. And then I have you in my prayers. And this is where he says, I make an investment in your life. Look at what he says. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of of God. In response to God's working in them, it was important that they continue to grow in Christian virtue. I just love how simple this is. What is the virtue that he is praying that they will grow in? It's intelligent, discerning love. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more 
with knowledge and all discernment. That they would grow in what they know about the Christian life and that they would then be wise in the way that they chose to love. The objects of their love, of course, are God himself, to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and our neighbor as ourself. But that we do that intelligently and with discernment because sometimes, right, someone needs to be rebuked. And sometimes someone needs to be encouraged. And when we rebuke someone, we're not just like, man, I'm gonna, guess what? I get to go set this person straight. It's going to feel so good. I'm so tired of their nonsense. Boom. That's not what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to say, you know what? I love you. And this is what you need to hear. And I'm going to walk with you. And I'm going to stay with you. Paul prays that his readers would be sincere and that they would be able to enter the presence of the Lord blameless. And so what he prays for them is that that their tastes would change and they would approve excellent things and that their love would abound more and more. And I've already talked about uh, love. It, It needs to be built on truth. And it needs to be built on what God's revealed in his word and not just sentimentality. This is, I believe, our world's major problem right now. What we want in society, what, the, what, what society in general craves, I believe, is personal peace, security, right? No judgment, everything working smoothly. That's love as imagined by John Lennon and everyone who has ever tried to remake the song Imagine, you know, or, or uh, like the Barry Manilow, like to buy the world a Coke kind of a thing. It's, it's a non-solution which is designed to transform the world, right? You know, just pure sentimentality. Wouldn't it be great if, yes, it would, but we've been at this for a long time as human beings and we've not created that world yet, right? Just built on a, a gush of love. Instead... What we need to do is work together and love each other in a way that is intelligent and that mirrors God's values. And so what we're supposed to do is, is to, to say, I want to, I want to love... And I want to love in such a way that when I speak or I act, I'm doing so consistent with the things that God loves. I'm valuing the things that God values. I'm turning away from the things that God hates. One of the things that Paul is pointing out to us here is that the most important thing that we can do is to pray for one another. To pray for one another. Because the transformation of the human heart is the most difficult thing. It is the most important work. It's the deepest, biggest thing that God does. And I feel like this is where this sermon's going to end, and we're going we're to pick up, and we're going to talk about the fruit of righteousness next week. It's, it, it occurs to me, this is something I brought up when I was down in Ecuador, and I was talking with the guys. I said, does it ever bother you that Jesus said, greater works than these will you do? Right? And then you look at all the things that Jesus did, right? He healed blind people, 
He was like mass producing food, you know. He's like walking on water. He's doing crazy cool stuff that like we use computer graphics for and we dress people up as superheroes and they do that, right? Like cool stuff. And this is what Jesus says. You'll do greater stuff than that. And so we read that and we think, where's the greater stuff, right? This is what I told the guys. I said, Jesus preached for three years best preacher who's ever lived, right? Most effective teacher, clearest, like son of God, son of man, 100% God, 100% human, perfect guy, right? Ends his ministry, ascends to heaven, and there are 120 people assembled in the upper room. That's it. That's what he's got after three years of ministry. Peter... Peter, right? You've read the New Testament, you know that Peter's always like, I'll die for you. And Jesus is like, really, you're going to die for me? And he's like, I'll die, yeah, you know. Bring on the enemies. And the enemies show up and Peter's like, I got to run, you know, and off he goes. Peter shows up on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit fills him and he preaches a sermon and 3,000 people come to Christ. 3,000 people, think about this, in a matter of minutes, He preaches a sermon and he exceeds the harvest that Jesus brought in throughout his entire ministry. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing to me. What does that say? It doesn't say that Peter, to me, this doesn't say Peter is better than Jesus or that Peter's more effective. It's that when the Holy Spirit is there and he is working through the word and God is at work, crazy, amazing stuff happens okay now i didn't plan on saying this and so i am looking right at this moment to find the passage that i need it is in the book of ephesians and you would think that i know this um ah here it is this is what paul prays that we would know in ephesians 2 verse 19 when we pray for people okay ephesians as we're i mean sorry philippians as we're closing down he says it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you would approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of christ filled with the fruit of righteousness what he's praying is that god would transform the hearts of the readers and this is what we ought to be praying for others that god would change them and transform them into his image and his likeness that he would remake and we would and he would remold them. Now look at what Paul prays in Ephesians for the Ephesians. And then I'm going to say one thing and we're going to we're going to close. He says he wants them to realize this is Ephesians 1 verse 18. He says he wants the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened so that they would know what the hope they're called to is and what are the riches of of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And then he said I want you to know What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? God's God's incredible power working towards the believer according to the working of his great might. Okay? Paul's stacking on positives here and he's saying, I want you to know how powerful God is working towards you. And he worked greatly in you. And this is the same work, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, okay? This is the the great power that God 
worked. It's the same power that he used to raise Christ from the dead. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, that when we were dead in trespasses, we were made alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. It takes the same power that raised Jesus from the dead to transform the human heart. The same power that raised him from the dead. You want to write this down? You want to look at it later? It's Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 18, working through verse 20, and then Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4, ending in verse 6. So what is the greatest investment that we can make in each other's lives? To pray that God would work in our lives and in our hearts. This is what Paul sees when he looks at the Philippians and he sees their fellowship. You're in my mind. I see enormous potential in you. You're in my heart. I love you and I need you. And I have you in my prayers because I'm making an investment in you. Let us look at each other that way as brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to share your word. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to to see ourselves as, as justified sinners, as those who've come to you in need and our sins have been canceled out. We thank you for that gift and we thank you for the confidence that we will make it to the end because of your work in us. Father, I pray that we would build bonds with each other based on our teamwork, on our common identity in Christ, on the fact that we love your word and we love your Savior, that we would send deep relational roots into one another and that we would be drawn to one another in love and affection. And then, Father, I pray that that love would move us to pray for one another, that you would work and transform us. Father, I pray that we would dig deep into this work and we would see it as a great and amazing opportunity that you've given to us. Not a drudgery, but an opportunity to invest in each other's lives that we might be transformed. We thank you for this. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for what you've given to us in Christ and for what you've given to us in each other. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together as we close.